The young Gandolfini is a gamble paid off. He gives the film lifeblood. That's Danny Lee of Financial Times talking about the many saints of Newark. Oh, baby. The moment <laughs> of truth has come. I got to watch the world premiere last week. And then I attended the after party. I've got stories on both. We have one of the great authorities in The Sopranos, Alan Sepinwall, who is the writer of The Sopranos Sessions. He went through every single episode. He and Matt Zoller cites his incredible book. Previous guest here in Cinephile, if you want to go back to listen to Alan. But he's got his thoughts in the movies. And again, I know what you're thinking, right? Spoiler free. I promise you. Well aware of the fact the movie comes out this Friday, October 1st, in theaters and available on HBO Max. I would never spoil anything for all of you as Uber Sopranos fans. That's the new... The old we have, I tell you, I came across this movie on HBO, The Madness of King George. I'd never seen it. came out in 1994. I knew that Nigel Hawthorne was nominated for Best Actor. I finally saw it. Excellent movie. And it's totally not my vibe. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. And our wild card, I saw this tweeting a couple weeks ago, people talking about greatest closing lines in movie history. So I've got a few I'll throw at you. And as always, want to keep this interactive. You can tweet me at CinephilePod and add me on SFERC. Please do go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Give us some love here on the podcast. Let us know how we're doing. The good news is, Chris Cody, we get to hang out a couple times last week. Not just Cinephile, but Thursday I made an appearance on the Dan Lebertard Show. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday, me and Mike Sure wrap things up. Why? <laughs> Watch party, Yankees, Red Sox. Me and Mike, now we're good to go. I feel like, you know, you didn't bring as many fireworks to this appearance, but I feel like <laughs> you and Mike sure had a nice thing going on. You talked some hardball, and uh, it was good. It was, it was like I said, I, I prefer the fireworks. So, like, I, you know, I would have preferred, you know, some more Bassett Hound stories, but, you know, it was, it was a good appearance from you. But I just want to say, Listening yeah. to like, because we're gonna hear from Seppenwall, like you, yeah. you're about to give your review on this movie. I haven't seen it yet. You guys, all the big wigs over here, get the uh, the special <laughs> treatment. I'm gonna see it like the common folk, and I, I just like hearing Seppenwall interview and you break it down. Like I'm just so excited. That's what I want to start with. Like, what level of Sopranos fandom are you? Because I don't know. You've seen the show in its entirety. I have seen it. I have not rewatched it like you like a million times, but uh, I have seen it. And I'm a, like, I'm just a casual Sopranos fan. But I'm telling you, like the fact that they got his kid playing him, like I'm just I'm all in on seeing this movie. I think you're more than casual. If you've seen the entire show, you're a Sopranos fan. That's where we go. So let's start with this. I'll set the stage for you. Because to Chris's point, people think, oh, because you're Mr. Cinephile, you got tickets. No, no. I've seen the show. I saw it in its original run. I was living in Canada at the time. It was like my last year of college when the show came out. I did not watch season one. Saw every single magazine in the world saying this is the greatest television show ever. <laughs> Entertainment Weekly, Rolling Stone, etc. Told my buddy Jane Atz, we were living together. I said, we got to get this show. You don't have HBO in Canada? I don't They may do at the time. They do me now, now, excuse me. But at the time, we had The Movie Network, TMN. <laughs> so... You'd pay like 20 bucks a month, and we're like 20 years old, making no money. I'm like, oh, what the hell? We'll get to you, man, just to watch The Sopranos. Yeah. So I started with season two, and then afterwards watched season one. Same thing I did with Breaking Bad, by the way. I don't know about you. Wow. I watched season That's interesting. two, and then I saw season one, yeah. That's interesting. I, I've never even heard of doing a show like that. Like, is it is it weird? To, what is it like watching season one after you like kind of watch season two? That's so odd. Well, it definitely filled in the blanks for me. I'm like, oh, okay, so that's why that character like that. Oh, so that's why Big Pussy was like, oh, okay, great. Livia was like, oh, okay, yes. cool, cool. It, it definitely helped fill the blanks. But by the way, it didn't it didn't hamper my enjoyment. Like I still loved season two when I saw it, and I went back and like, oh, okay, it's even yeah. better than I thought. Cool. But um, I rewatched the entire show because my wife had never seen it, so we binged watched it in 2019. And then for really avid fans here of Cinephile, they know that every episode I went through and kind of broke it down as I was rewatching, which was a lot of fun to do. And then of course during the pandemic, I watched. I mean, I've seen Long Term Parking at least five or six times. There's certain episodes that I particularly love that I've seen a lot of times. Um, 
What's interesting is that David Chase, I've now listened to him on three interviews. I listened to him with Mark Maron. I listened to him on Josh Horowitz, Happy Sack Confused. And I watched him with Steppenwall, who did an HBO interview with him. And like every single time, he's just a dour guy, serious guy. <laughs> but what's interesting is he said, he goes, you know, we did this show. And it was hugely popular. We won a bunch of Emmys, you know, obviously record-breaking. And it changed television. Like literally, I'm sure you and I both love Breaking Bad. I know a lot of people love uh, The Shield. Uh, Mad Men, like all those shows came from The Sopranos. Like this was the first show where you could say, "Listen, it felt cinematic. You could have a real anti-hero, a really negative mm-hmm. protagonist, and still make the show work." And it, it changed television, which is amazing to think about. He said, "At the time, we were very popular." And he goes, "And then, like five, ten years later, people were still watching it." And he goes, "Then the pandemic happened." And he goes, "Like I was walking the streets, and I'd meet forty, fifty-year-old guys going, oh, my kids are now watching your show.'" And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> He's like, "Yeah, like millennial eighteen-year-olds yeah. are watching The Sopranos start to finish. Very rare, Chris. You can think of a." show that seems to have the kind of staying powers of Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, I literally can't think of another one. And you're so right about Tony Soprano. Like, the fr- when you think back of the character that you root for that you shouldn't be rooting for, that started with Tony Soprano. Like, there were so many shows after that that followed that path. And it's just Tony Soprano, James Gandolfini. Like, I, I don't think that there's ever been a better performance in TV. Like, if you just think best performances in TV history, I don't think you're wrong if you say James Gandolfini. I'm with you, man. Like, you can't ever picture another actor in that role. And The Sopranos at its height, and Seppelon Zoller Zeitz made this point in their book. He said, it's the only show that was the most dramatic show on television. Like, clearly, suspenseful, mm-hmm. intense. But it was also the funniest show on television. Yep. It was the best comedy. Polly. It was the best drop the same time. Polly <laughs> Walnuts alone. <laughs> Uncle Junior's one-liners. Like, are you kidding? These guys were hysterical characters. So good. And it was so authentic. If you know anybody who's Italian-American, know anybody from Jersey, which is where I now live, they're like, oh, my God. The show is so authentic. The mortadelle and the sausage and peppers. Mm-hmm. So anyways. Just Tony to- eating. I mean, just oh. scenes where Tony would just be by himself <laughs> in that Italian restaurant. Oh, my God. Eating the bolognese. I don't even know what he's eating. He's just the yeah. way you hear him. <laughs> And I can just like, it's just amazing. Ugh. Him eating as such realities is definitely something impressive. By the way, when we first moved to Jersey a couple of years ago, I wanted to see all the landmarks. So Holston's, which is the diner, which the final scene happens, is like 20 minutes from my house. So immediately I went there and I'm like, it's always a lot smaller than you realize. You walk in and you go, oh, that's the diner. I'm like, yeah, that's where Tony maybe got shot, bought some chocolates afterwards. The amount of people going there right now is ridiculous because now the Sopranos revival. Everyone's going to Holston's. It's like mm-hmm. a pilgrimage. I can't think of many things in life. You go, oh, we got to go to the diner where the final scene of the Sopranos was. So back to Chris's original point inferring that I'm some sort of bigwig. No, no. The reason, the reason I went to this movie is I paid for it, okay? I get alerts on my phone because I went to Sopranos Con a couple years ago, which is exactly as it sounds. I paid 250 bucks to go, and you literally lined up for 30 minutes to an hour to meet members of the Sopranos cast. So the, I oh, met wow. Dominic Chinesi, Uncle Junior. The line for Adriana, ridiculous. I mean, every perv is there, like, two-hour wait. Like, I'm not going to do this. But... Um, Holly Walnuts. Like, I mean, it was amazing. Like, aside from Gandolfini, who of course had passed away, Edie Falco was not there, Carmela. But like a lot of the minor characters were there. Like Burt Young was great, got to meet him. Um, and a lot of the people were very, very friendly. And so at that Sopranos Con event, afterwards I signed up some mailing list. And so any sort of mob thing happening, I get sent to. Like they're gonna do another Sopranos Con, unsurprisingly, bring back the same people, and they're gonna do other events. So I saw the email about a month ago saying, hey, be the first to watch the Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, at the Beacon Theater, world premiere part of Tribeca Film Festival. So the tickets alone, Chris, 90 bucks each. And let's be clear, I don't think you've been to the Beacon in New York City. It's mm-hmm. a very famous uh, place with a lot of musicians, I think. But the Allman Brothers used to play them all the time. But like we're like in row Q. So like we're four rows up from the top. The first thing my wife was like, God, like we, we are high up here. Like, hey, we're here though. And yeah. everybody in that crowd was there because this is it. This is the debut. 
but 200, like 180 for tickets, 50 for parking, 100, 100 plus for the babysitter, like 350 bucks to be at this experience. Yeah, but when you're the Sopranos fan, you are though. This is worth it. This is a nice. Correct. This is a nice night out. A hundred percent. I mean, you, did, you got to go to the after party too, though. So let's right. not like I you mean, know. Let's make that clear. Though. You're right. So the after party, which I will tell stories about, that was purely through Metal Arc Media and our friends <laughs> at DraftKings. But we're like, oh, if you're going, we'll get you the after party. So you're right. That did soften the three hundred fifty dollars. Like, okay, <laughs> movie plus after party. I think it's all going to be worth it now. But it was an amazing experience. We go there. Robert De Niro, of course, because it's through Tribeca, his film festival. He and Jane Rosenthal introduced David Chase. He goes out there to zero enthusiasm, but the whole crowd's going nuts. He introduces. Every member of the cast. Alessandro Novolo, who's playing Dickie Moltisanti, introduces Gandolfini's kid, introduces, as he put it, the divine Vera Farmiga, um, <laughs> introduces Ray Liotta, who shuffles out. I'm like, oh my God. And then the movie starts, and we're like, oh my God. This, this is actually the moment of truth here. The movie's going to go, masked up, everyone is, you know, quarantined and ready to go. So, this segment of Cinephile is sponsored by Warner Brothers in partnership for their new movie, The Many Saints of Newark. Now, last week, as I told you guys, I was going to be at the premiere screening, and now it comes out in theaters on Friday, and I get to tell you all about it. Here's the key thing. I'm not going to mention any spoilers. I'm just so excited to talk about this film. So, I'll give you the plot synopsis, which is being given right now, because I don't want to give anything away. Young Anthony Soprano is growing up in one of the most tumultuous eras in Newark's history, becoming a man just as rival gangsters begin to rise up and challenge the all-powerful DeMeo crime family's hold over the increasingly race-torn city. Caught up in the changing times is the uncle he idolizes, Dickie Moltisanti, who struggles to manage both his professional and personal responsibilities, and whose influence over his impressionable nephew will help make the teenager into the all-powerful mob boss we'll later come to know, Tony Soprano. So the movie starts out, at first, uh, I'm not going to give it away, but the narr narration comes, amazing, because it already puts you in that world, and it was just so fun to be back in that world and to do it, Chris, with people who are such rabid fans. Again, nobody accidentally said to themselves, oh, it's a Wednesday night, let me go to the Beacon Theater and pay hundreds of dollars to watch The Many Saints of New York. No, you're there because you're a diehard, mm -hmm. you've seen the show many times, you're all in, and it was just so refreshing. It's like being back in a a lovable armchair that you love. Like, you're just so comfortable again, back in a suit that still fits. You're like, all right, here we go. And I think the best news is this. If you don't know The Sopranos, just as a standalone gangster film, I still think you're really going to enjoy the movie. It has compelling characters. It's got violence. It's got treachery. It's got betrayal. It's got sexy women. It's got all the stuff you'd expect, all the hallmarks of a mob movie. But it also has a real reward for Sopranos fans, which is lots of so-called Easter eggs. You know, back when you used to have DVDs, you get these Easter eggs and look them up. Mm -hmm. There's a half a dozen laughs in this movie, Chris, that was only generated by the people in that audience being so smart and so knowledgeable about The Sopranos. Again, my wife sat with me. She's kind of chuckling, but like we're roaring because I'm like, oh yeah, if you really know the show, you're getting why that reaction shot is just so funny. So that was the overwhelming feeling I had watching the movie. It was so great to be back. It was so refreshing. I don't think you have to have known the film, known the show, excuse me, to know the movie, but even if you haven't seen that, you can see how Tony Soprano became this iconic gangster. And if you haven't seen the show, hopefully the movie will prompt you to do that. You watch the movie and go, okay, now I want to go back and see the show. As far as characters that you would know if you know the show, again, Dickie Moltisanti's reference in The Sopranos, that's the father of Christopher, um, played by Michael Imperioli. You've got Vera Farmiga playing Livia Soprano, who is incredible, obviously, in the original show, Nancy Marchand, before she passed away. Johnny Boy Soprano, who is Tony's dad, that's played by John Bernthal. 
Leslie Odom Jr., who I love, he was um, obviously in Hamilton. He plays Harold McBrayer. That's a new character. And then Michael Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. So you get a sense of how these characters were created. I think what's really important is the pacing of the movie. It's only two hours long. David Chase made it clear that he did not want to make something that was too long, or he really wanted to make it be a movie. And I think the big thing is right now, you want to see it in theaters, because that's where you're going to generate, I think, the most excitement. As I'm telling you, I was there... It's a communal experience. That's the whole point of going to the movies is to have this shared experience. And again, as a mob film, I think it's excellent. But as a Sopranos film, it's a real treat. And the more investment you have in the Sopranos, the more you're going to be rewarded by this experience. And I loved it. I was happy to be there. I hope people enjoyed it as much as I do. It was really, I, I, I hate to use this expression, but a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I, I can only hope we'll get more of this. Even the soundtrack, you know, hearing Sinatra, hearing Coltrane, being back in that era, and very timely. Again, I hear race riots, and I'm like, oh, is this based in reference to what we as a country have gone through the last two years? And David Chase is like, no, I just always want to tell this story. And Tom Fontana, the great writer of Oz and Homicide Life on the Street, he first told him, he goes, you know what? I'd be kind of curious to see what happened when Johnny Boy was a kid, like him and Dickie running around together. He's like, oh, you know what? And David Chase's family's from Newark, and Newark is where the show was set, in New Jersey. Oh, in 1967, there were race riots. So he said there was all this intrigue around it, the whole idea of Italians and blacks and growing up and being impressionable and family and again I think they do a really smart job of tying it all together it's fascinating when you look at shows that are so beloved you feel like how much of it do we have to do for the fans and how much of it are we doing for the common folk the best compliment I can pay the many saints of Newark is they tread that line very carefully and it's something that will be rewarded by appreciation by diehards and by casual fans as well I'm giving it for me police I can't wait for people to see it uh, again, I think a spoiler-free review here, Chris. Hopefully people will be fired up to see it, right? Very solid review. I cannot wait to see it. It's in theaters Friday. You got to get your tickets, people. Because you got. I know it's going to be on HBO Max, but you want to go to the, I feel like this is one of those things, if you're a Sopranos fan, you want to go to the theater and see this. 100%. I can't wait to go see it again in theaters here in North Jersey. You'll be seeing it in Florida. Now that we've discussed the many saints of Newark, and again, I hope you're all purchasing your tickets to go see it, Warner Brothers and DraftKings have teamed up to give our listeners a shot at $5,000. Think of that, 5,000 cannolis. Head to DraftKings.com slash many saints to play in the many saints of Newark challenge today. It's free to play, and all you have to do is answer questions about the upcoming film. The challenge ends on October 3rd. So be sure to play today at DraftKings.com slash Many Saints. And honestly, good luck. I hope you guys all crush it. Thanks again to Warner Brothers for partnering with DraftKings for the Many Saints of Newark in theaters and streaming exclusively on HBO Max as of Friday. You get to see how Tony Soprano is made. Now we get to the goofy stuff. The after party. <laughs> so, so the give, movie give the goods. Give it up. Oh, yeah. And they have a shuttle bus. First of all, taking us after him, like, oh, okay, cool. So it's right on the beacons at 74th, 75th on Broadway. Go outside. People are lining up. We see one of the minor characters in the movie. My wife's like, oh, my God. Like, a couple people are kind of talking to him, getting a picture. I'm like, should I get a picture? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to bother the guy. I mean, he's a really nice guy, but leave him alone. It's fine. We see one of the other kids who's actually Gandolfini, like, as a really young kid. So Michael Gandolfini plays Tony, but then there's a guy who plays Tony when he's, like, eight years old. I'm like, oh, there's that kid. He's outside. He's got a nice little suit on. I'm like, I don't want to bug this kid. We go on the bus, we head there, and it seems fairly quiet, which is to say that you walk in, you see a couple tables, lots of food set up, hors d'oeuvres and such. There's a lot of paparazzi outside. I don't even see paparazzi, fans. There's fans lining up and such, trying to get pictures, whatever. Did you get any Adnan, Adnan? Sadly, there was no Michael Keaton type moment. Nobody knew what it was. (laughs) But we we go in there, and I said to my wife, listen, these things, nobody shows up. Like, Ray Liotta is not going to show up here, okay? We'll get a couple hors d'oeuvres, we'll have some pizza, we'll have some pasta, and we'll call it a day. 
And as I say that, she looks over and she goes, oh my God. And she can't react well in the moment. Like she just, her emotions overtake her. She's just, and, and, and again, she likes the Sopranos. She's not at my level, but she loves celebrities. Yeah. Loves celebrities. Just likes being in that environment. So yeah. She, and the guy goes, hey, how you doing? All right. And I'm like, it's Steve Buscemi. I'm like, yeah, it's yes. Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi is not in the movie, by the way, but he was in the Sopranos season five, as you know, and he directed Pine Barrens very famously. Yeah. So the first words out of my mouth are like, oh, Steve Buscemi. I'm like, hey, uh, can I get a picture? And he's like, Actually, I'm not doing that. He's with his wife, significant other. <laughs> Completely shuts me down. Like, oh my! I just got shut down by Steve Buscemi. Like, why would like that was so brutal? Like, he's, actually, I'm not doing that. I'm like, hey, no problem at all. Love Fargo. Love Pine Barrens. Good to see you. Like, all right, have a good one. And I, I even recovered better because I said, hey, I just heard John Marin, and I did not realize he was a former firefighter. All right, yeah, bring it home. Mm-hmm. So I, I brought it home. And he's like, okay, thanks, thanks so much. No problem. So then we're kind of like, oh, well, Steve Buscemi looks pretty good. Okay. All right, probably not going to ask anyone else for pictures, though. That kind of no, probably scorned you. No, my wife immediately goes, hey, this is, no one's doing any pictures. No more selfies. <laughs> like, I got it. We look over. We see John Bernthal, who plays Johnny Boy. I'm like, oh, my God. My wife's like, oh, I love John Bernthal. But he's clearly in conversation. We don't want to interrupt mm. him. We're like, oh, let's file it away. We'll get him at some point. Then we look over. She goes, it's David Chase. I go, there's no way it's David Chase. He hates this kind of stuff. She goes, it's David Chase. I look over. I'm like, it is David Chase. Met David Chase once before when we saw Death of a Salesman, which is an incredible play. Philip Seymour Hoffman, unbelievable. I remember walking out going, oh, my God, David Chase. And he's like, how you doing? I'm like, what are you going to like, the play? He's like, great. And I said, what are you working on now? He goes, movie. So clearly not a warm-hearted guy. That was my David Chase experience. I'm like, I don't think I want to repeat that again. But then, as I got a little closer to him just to see who else is around, I see Stevie Van Zandt. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like Lombardi, my co-host on the GM Shuffle, is about as big a boss fan as you'll meet. Is I mean, he wearing the headband? Had the headband. I'm like, oh, my God, Stevie Van Zandt. <laughs> kind of give a head nod. I'm like, all right, Stevie Van Zandt. Like, this is pretty cool. Then it just started to get odd. Like, then we see all the cast. Corey Stoll is there as Uncle June, who, by the way, is great in the movie. It's tough to top Dominic Chinesi as Junior, but uh, Corey Stoll does a really good job. We see Vera Farmiga, low-cut dress. We see Michael Gandolfini. Okay. Then it got weird. My wife goes, oh, my God, one of your favorite actors is over there. I'm like, Al Pacino? She's like, it's not Al Pacino. Like, Robert Pacino? No, it's not Robert Pacino. <laughs> How many people do I have to go? Paul G. Mike? It's not Paul G. Mike. But it is one of my favorites. Ethan Hawke is there. I'm like, oh, I love Ethan Hawke. He's great. Long hair, suit. He's, mm-hmm. he's wrapped up in conversation with Bobby Cannavale. I'm like, oh, my God, I love Bobby Cannavale. <laughs> and he's next to his wife, Rose Byrne. I go, this is unbelievable. Wow. And then we got to the, the biggest one that was the most shocking. This guy has been tarred and feathered because of Me Too. Uh, I mean, several women have accused him of inappropriate sexual improprieties. And he's there at the Sopranos after party. Wasn't drinking. I looked at him like, I had a Coke. Had a couple friends with him. Take a guess who it was. I I, I think, listen, forget about whatever may or may not have happened, which I don't support. He's a great actor. I think he's a terrific (laughs) actor. I'll tell you right now, he's one of your favorite actors, too. Because he's part of that group that you love. I mean, I, I mean, you're, it's a dangerous game to guess people who have had, like, you know, issues with, like, the Me Too movement. I mean, when you just said my like people that I like that have had issues with that, James Franco, nailed it. James okay. Franco is at the party. Oh wow! Thank you for giving me the hint of someone that I would like, because I was just about to start a shrapnel for people who right. were in Me Too. Sure, Dustin Hoffman, like that was not Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> so James Franco's there, and my wife's like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "You love James Franco?" She's like, "Yeah." My wife is from the Bay Area. Uh, Franco is from Palo Alto. She's like, "I just want to mention the fact, hey Palo Alto," and I'm like. He doesn't look in a chatty mood. Like, he seemed like he was with his friends. He was cool. I'm like, like, it's one of those where you go, oh, when you go to the bathroom, maybe just conveniently run yes. into him. Like, that guy's not going to take a piss. <laughs> he is locked in there. Franco is not risking anyone going up to him. Like, say, hey, I know what you did to those yeah, women. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so nothing? So no, so no. So no, I didn't, I didn't want to talk to him. But I did talk to Gandolfini's kid, who was great. And we were kind of just staring at him. So again, kind of like Buscemi, he just knew, like, these people are staring at me. I'll just say hi. What do you so say? He, like, you don't, you don't mention his dad, right? Cause his I, did, dad, I, I did. I did. I shook his hand. I go, dude, I thought you were awesome in the movie. He's like, thanks. I go, honestly, terrific job. And I said, you know, uh, I was such a huge fan of your dad. You really honored his legacy. Oh, yeah, that's re- good. Re- remarkable stuff. He's like, thanks. And my wife said the same thing. He's like, right, thanks so much, guys. That's nice. So Michael gave me a few words. Bashemi shut me down. Look at that. But it was my wife loves it. She goes, I wish we could stay here until two in the morning. I go, why? <laughs> she goes, they're gonna start to get drunk, they're gonna get a little loose, we can joke with them and stuff. I go, no, I don't think I, I oh, really want to get Your eaten. wife I, is like me. That's what I'd be oh, like too. Come on, we're like, staying the whole let's, time. Let's, just, let's go. Right, we're staying till four. I go to the sitter. Forget the sitter. The kids will be fine. We're gonna stay till <laughs> four. I love it. Yes. Now I love Leslie Odom Jr. because he was so good as Sam Cook in One Night Miami. He is there, of course he is in the movie. And then him and Ethan Hawks are vibing out. I'm like, oh my God. Those guys were just Boom, for 30 minutes, like magnetic fields together. Ethan Hawke, a big theater guy. Obviously, Leslie Owen was in Hamilton, so I think they were just having a big Broadway theater conversation. Yeah. They, they were like lighting up. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Dan in a social occasion. Maybe someone <laughs> really loves his work. He likes their work. They kind of cling together. Ethan Hawke and Leslie Odom Jr., they were in love with each other. Dan crazy. is so socially awkward. You have to think of someone else for that. I mean, Stugatz maybe, but like Dan yeah, is... Stugatz, like, like if Stugatz saw Dan Marino, maybe Dan right. Marino liked... I mean, yes. I know Stu's not a Dolphins fan, but maybe something like that. <laughs> exactly. But, um, it was definitely... My thanks to Ashley Ricks who hooked it up. She was so great. I mean, just to be able to have that experience... Honestly, thanks to DraftKings. My wife said, you know what she said to me after? She goes, hey, the big thing is this. Can we do more of these? I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, she goes we got here because of your association with Metal Arc and DraftKings. I'm like, yeah. She goes, so what's the next big one? Are we going to get more celebrities? I'm like, me and your well, wife are very similar. Oh, I go, well, like, Dune's coming out October. Okay, Dune, go to DraftKings. See yes. if there's a Dune contest. I go, all right, well, if we can hook it up, Tony Alludi can. All right, we'll see. If, the, if, if Dune is holding a premiere in New York City, we're going to be there. Okay? I love we'll it. The I love no it. No problem at all. Anyways, that was my experience. Honestly, an unbelievable experience. The Many Saints of Newark. I hope everyone enjoys the movie. Enough out of me. Let's hear from the authority, Alan Sepinwall, who's as locked in as anybody. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There's a big dick swinging contest right now with everyone saying, how big a Sopranos fan are you? Well, I've seen the show five times. Well, I've binge watched it during COVID three times back to back. Well, I've actually met a few of the characters. Well, guess what? Alan Sepinwall is the authority. And I'll tell you why. I'm holding up the Sopranos sessions, which I have the uncorrected proof, which he sent me when I interviewed him previously on Cinephile, the not for sale version of the Sopranos sessions. So Alan and Matt Zoller-Seitz went through every single episode. So I'm going to say this. 
not only have they watched the show multiple times, they've went through every single episode multiple times because they literally do a blow-by-blow of everything. If you know Alan's work, he likes to go episode-by-episode, his episodic reviews, in fact, of the stuff of Legends. So you're not going to get a bigger authority than Alan Seppenwall. He is, of course, the uh, chief editor right now of The Rolling Stone, chief TV critic, I should say, and, of course, The Sopranos Sessions, available where books are sold. Alan, a pleasure to have you. You are the authority on The Sopranos. Uh, I'm not an expert on a lot of things, but this one I feel pretty confident about. Yes, thanks for having me. Of course. Before we get into the movie, I love the 30-minute interview you did with David Chase. So I watched your interview with him. I listened to him on Mark Marin, and I listened to him with uh, my buddy Josh Horowitz, Happy, Sad, Confused. All three interviews, David Chase, of course, coming across, as you'd expect him to be, dour, serious, intense. I was just thrilled at least he name-checks you. Like, he obviously knows you. Alan, how are you? Nice to see you again. And, <laughs> and you were following the classic model. You know, at ESPN, we had a Canadian, great Canadian, John Sawatsky, would teach us either interview questions, as you know, open, lean, neutral. Open-ended, lean means make it short, and neutral, unbiased, which is the hardest one. You can't say, David, why didn't you make the film more like this? Okay, well, it was lean, and it was open, but it wasn't neutral. You're giving him open, lean, and neutral questions, and David Chase is just completely unimpressed <laughs> with the entire process. And at any point, do you feel like you're talking to the Bill Belichick of media and sports media? Well, I mean, I feel like if I, covering The Sopranos as long as I have, going back to when the show was on the air and I was at the Star-Ledger, which was Tony's favorite newspaper, yeah. I, it almost feels as if, like, I am a Patriots beat writer. I've interviewed David <laughs> so many times, more than I've talked to anyone else professionally over my career. And so by now I've learned, like, what kind of questions he will respond to and what kind of questions he won't. And also, like, how long to wait out the pause. Because sometimes he's pausing to think, and sometimes he's pausing because he just doesn't care and doesn't want to respond to your question. And it's a real, like, delicate balance. Yeah, it helped that it was on camera, because you're right. I don't think he can pause as long, because even he's aware that it's going to look awkward. But that, that pregnant pause he'll give sometimes, it's, uh, it's stuff of legend. So credit to you to hang in there. All right. The movie itself, I've already given my review as we DM'd. I was curious for your thoughts. You have not posted your review yet. We're recording this on a Wednesday. This is going to post tomorrow on the 30th, and hopefully by the time everyone listens to it, they'll have seen the film. I'm, I'm going to do this as broad as possible. What would you think of the movie? I really enjoyed the movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. That said, I will say it feels to me like it's a very good movie that could have been a great one. And one of the things I talked with David about in that interview in L.A. that's on Rolling Stone is, like, he's always wanted to make a movie. And in his mind, movies should be two hours or less. And so he was very adamant. This wasn't like the studio cut it. He insisted on cutting it down to this. But with the Tony and Livia scenes and Uncle Junior and a lot of those other characters, you can fill in the blanks because you know them really, really well. And they're also played by great actors here. With these other characters, I think they're very well played as well. But it's still like there's stuff very palpably missing from this movie. And I think if he'd been willing to do a two and a half or a three hour cut of it, the studio would have said yes, and I think it would have been better. As it is, I was still just very happy to be back in this world and like feeling the same feelings I often felt watching the show. That was one of the best questions you asked him about the running time, and he made it clear. He goes, no, I'm going two hours or less. It was very important to me. Now, I listened to him, again, with Horowitz's podcast, and he asked him, what do you think of The Irishman? And I'm thinking, Chase, after hearing your interview, is going to say, well, I liked it. It was a little bit long. But, of course, he's not going to discourse as he publicly Never. Said, no, he would yeah, never he, discourse as he. No. And he said, he goes, I thought it was a great film. I learned a lot about the labor stuff, the Unix era. But with his answer to you, it was very telling. That like, hey, I think movies today are a little too long. I want to make this thing nice and short. But it's the rare film, I agree with you, in which brevity is 
not a strength. And and I watch it at the beacon. Listen, nobody is getting into that crowd, Alan, unless you're a rabid fan. We're yeah. paying 100 bucks a ticket. Everyone's laughing at the exact same spots. As you messaged me, and we're not going to give it away, but the ending, you go, hey, what was the reaction? Like, are you kidding? Everyone started roaring. It was like fucking Superman showed up all of a sudden. I'm like, yeah, like, everyone went nuts. Yeah. But I think you're right. And I tell people, I say, listen, if you're a fan of The Sopranos, you're going to be happy to be in that world, as you said. You'll get more out of it the more you know it. There's about a yes. half a dozen jokes that I'm like, okay, that's only for the Uber fan that really knows the show well. You mentioned the performances and a couple specifically. I walked out of the theater. I'm with you. I thought Leota was nails as always. And it was interesting when, when um, you know, obviously De Niro and Jane Rosenthal introduced David Chase, and then as uh, apathetic as ever, he introduced the entire cast. The, the guy that I walked out of there, and I was happy to see him at the after party, was Michael Gandolfini. And he was yes. the one that I go, hang on, this could be a little tricky. Like, yeah, I know it's his dad. I know he looks like his kid, but can he actually act? But Alan, he he clearly watched the show. He clearly put in his homework. I mean, those scenes, those are the best parts of the movie for me. Him and Livia together, two characters who were so identifiable in the show, I thought him and Vera Farmiga knocked it out of the park. Oh, they're they're incredible. There's there's one scene in particular where it's the two of them in like the kitchen and they're talking yeah. and they're trying to open up to each other. And it never <laughs> quite works out because it just can't with these two, and we know that. The two of them are so good together. And you're right, Michael, like, he's young, he's done only a couple of jobs before this. And he's taking on, like, one of the great performances ever put on film anywhere. Like, this is an impossible job, and he does it. And it's not just that he looks like his dad. It's he, like, studied, as you said, and figured out what it is that makes Tony tick. And how to do it, both just sort of from a logistical and physical standpoint. But also, like, he gets something emotionally about it. It felt like I was watching Tony there. Which should yeah. not be possible, and he did it. No. <laughs> exactly. And what's interesting, too, is that you know when you watch the film, again, I think people who don't know The Sopranos like us are going to say, yeah, like it's, it's a good gangster film, and I enjoyed it. And I think if you're a Sopranos fan, you'll get more out of it. But, of course, the question becomes, how many more will there be? This is Dickie Moltisanti's story. Okay, we're going to get Big Pussy's story. Are we going to get the story of the Russian from Pine Barrens? Like I, 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 it's such an odd spot for me. I'm curious your version of it. We love the show. We love the characters, yeah. but I don't want to see it cheapen and all of a sudden turn into the Marvel Cinematic Universe as The Sopranos. And yet, I could see David Chase grudgingly being pulled back in. In fact, I believe with you, he said, he goes, you don't have to do it. Like, it's not under my purview. HBO owns it. Yes. And I would trust Terry Winter if you want to do it. For those who don't know Terry Winter, of course, one of the great writers, Boardwalk Empire, wrote Wolf of Wall Street. So Chase doesn't have to do it. If yes. it's HBO, Alan, are you, they're going to make five Sopranos movies in the next two years if they could. I mean, yeah, I think it depends on how the movie is received. And again, the day and date stuff with HBO Max muddies the water. But like, if People really respond strongly to this movie over the weekend and over the coming weeks. I would not be surprised at all if they went back to these actors and said, look, we want to do something. Because when I interviewed all of them for the series of stories I did for Rolling Stone, like Michael Gandolfini was said up front, like, I didn't want to do this. And now I would do like several more movies. Vera Farmiga just said, look, just make a new TV show and I will play Livia on the TV show. So I think there's enough people there who would be willing to do it. And Chase seems like even between the time I interviewed him in July and now seems to have softened a bit even more on the idea of it continuing, you know, or bringing in somebody like Winner to do it. So I would not be shocked if there was some kind of follow-up film kind of bridging the gap because there's certainly still more to tell about young Tony between, you know, when we see him as a teenager in this movie as an adult, and we've had some of it alluded to, but if they wanted to do more and we got to see these guys doing it, I would enjoy that. 
I can't recommend The Soprano Sessions enough. It's a brilliant book by Alan and Matt Zoller Sites. They literally go through every single episode. They've got an extensive interview with David Chaste. Um, you know, I've seen the, obviously the series start to finish twice. I've seen individual episodes many times. HBO, as you know, is now running episodes in, a, in a, you know, anticipation of the prequel. I watched, just for fun, I had a few minutes, I watched Second Opinion again, which is season three, episode seven, which has one of the great Uncle Junior moments ever, which is him and Tony going back and forth. And also I watched Amour Fu again, which oh, as you know is such a both. showcase for, I mean, uh, such a showcase for Gloria. And you know what I love about it? Because you can appreciate this. We can nerd out for a second. I Go. just love Dan Grimaldi is Patsy Parisi because he never really had a moment or a signature scene except for that one. When yep. when she tells him, hey, this is standard operating procedure, and he pulls out the gun, they're going to be scraping your nipples off the interior here, and the last face you're going to see is not Tony's, it'll be mine. And like, he's, Al, he's got this milk toast face. Like, yeah. He's got the face that you would not want to see before you die. Yeah. You know, it won't be cinematic. It won't be cinematic scene. is one of my favorite lines on the show. <laughs> because it's funny because like that's what all, Sopranos was always determined to be was not cinematic. Like, it looked great. It looked like a movie in a way that a lot of TV shows at the time didn't. But in terms of, like, narratively, it wasn't glamorous. They always sort of steered towards anti-climax. You think, like, Tony and Furio are going to fight by the helicopter or something. That never happens. All these things that you expect don't happen. And so, like, that's kind of like a signature line for the show right there. Oh, it's so good. I was at Sopranos Con a couple of years ago, and then you, I posted I was there, and you messaged me, hey, come by, say hi. So you were there as well. I didn't see you there. Yes. But God, what an experience. I mean, the lineup to see Adriana was just absurdly long, but I did get to meet Dominic Cianese, and I enjoyed, again, geeking out with some of the so-called minor characters. You know, uh, Jason Serbone was a nice guy, Jackie Jr. It was good yep. to meet... Um, you know, some of those more supporting characters. I mean, even the guy, the guy I don't even know his actor's name now. It's, it's Armin Garrel. That's his name. Armenian guy who uh, late in the season, uh, late in the series, I should say, says to Meadow, you got a little bit of whipped cream there. I'd be happy to add to it. And then later on, Tony Ugh. beats the absolute crap out of him. I mean, those kinds of characters, you go, oh, you're the guy who made the pig-headed comment to Meadow in yep. season six. <laughs> like, 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 what an experience Sopranos Con was. I couldn't even imagine. Listen, I know there's Comic Con, but the fact that you were there in the Meadowlands experiencing that, how bizarre was that? How great was that? It was It was very fun. It was super exciting. It was really weird. Like, suddenly Matt and I just <laughs> sat down, like, in Dr. Melfi's office. That's currently, like, my author photo. The next book I have that comes out, it's going to be a shot of me sitting in Dr. Melfi's chair because it's like one of the better pictures anyone's taken of me but it was just it like just seeing these guys wandering around and suddenly you turn and there is jackie jr you know at one point i got like pulled on stage and i'm standing next to you know vincent pastore as big pussy i'm like wait what is happening here it was really it was a delight yeah, Vince Corotola, fantastic as well. You guys got good stories about him, Johnny Sack, just how he got the role and went out for a smoke and all the rest of it. Um, I do want to touch on a couple of other things. Just your, your career has been so great, and I've been so impressed by just the longevity, because in a world in which I feel like criticism isn't valued as much as it once was, because everyone can tweet their review and say, okay, that's it. You're still a guy who is prolific, who cares about the medium, who cares about uh, criticism as an art form. And I go back to the night of. It was one of your great reviews ever, because again, you were going episode by episode, which I loved. Yeah. And I just want to give you a very specific compliment. When John Turturro, in the one episode, he convinces or tries to convince Riz Ahmed, he goes, take the deal. I wish I could have 20 more years of my life. Like, just take the deal 
deal, serve some time and you'll get out because you're not going to win. You made such a perceptive point. You go, you would never see that in a show. Every show, the lawyer says, fight the case. I'll fight to the death for you. Yeah. I know you're innocent. You'll get this. I thought that was such a brilliant point that you made. What a great show it was from Steve Zalian that in this case, the lawyer who's got these horrific feet and all the rest of it, he's telling no, kid, take the deal. I'd kill to have half of my life because we might not win this thing. Thank you. That's, that's very nice of you to say. And I really like that show. And the funny thing is, I'm not sure if you remember this, the Tortura role was originally supposed yeah, to be played by Jim Gandolfini. And yeah. yeah, so he shepherded that thing to, to the forefront. But in terms of criticism, I've just, I, I you know, I wouldn't, there's so much TV now and it's, <laughs> it can be so oppressive in some ways that I wouldn't still be doing the job if I didn't enjoy it and didn't like, couldn't put all of myself into it. And so I, I'd like to think that the passion that I still feel for it and that I'm putting into my work is palpable. And that's why people are still reading me after all this time. No question. And like I said, the fact, how did you come upon that idea? By the way, show comes out, I'll bang out a review on the episode immediately. Did you come up with that idea? Your editor, who's first? No, I originally came out, I was in college and I was on like the, the sort of the primitive days of the internet, like these Usenet news groups. And there was a guy named Tim Lynch, who's like now a high school science professor elsewhere in New Jersey who would recap episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I read these, were like, wow, like, you can just write about every episode of a show? That's really cool. And a couple years later, I started doing it with this cop show, NYPD Blue, and that helped me get the job at the Star-Ledger, and I sort of moved away from it for a while, and it was The Sopranos, actually, that brought me back to it, because I, when I was covering the show, they would do an episode like, you know, Ralphie gets his head cut off, and I would walk into the newsroom the next day and say, guys, I have to write about this. People are going to want to read about this. And, you know, I began doing it more and more, and by the last couple seasons, I wrote about every episode, and that just, you know, mushroomed, and that became the thing I was known for. I loved it, especially particularly with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Can we solve one of the great mysteries of life? How has Ray Seahorn never won an Emmy, much less get a nomination for the, some of the best work on television? She's so good, but part of what makes her so good is that she's subtle. You know, and it's the reason, like, Nancy Marshall never won the Emmy for playing Livia on The Sopranos, which is you kind of need to see every episode bit by bit to appreciate all of the amazing things that she was doing and that Ray Seahorn is doing on Better Call Saul. And the way the Emmys work is people are watching one episode. So it's not so much best acting, it's most acting. It's, you know, <laughs> who is, like, playing a funny drunk? Who is, like, melting down? Who is crying? Who is doing something really, really big in this episode? I will give them that award. Yeah, it's just uh, frustrating every single time it happens. We'll close with the sports question. As a New York sports fan, what do you want to talk about? Knicks, Yankees, what do you got? Uh, I mean, I thought I was all done with the Yankees and that I was going to be all in on the Knicks for the winter, but somehow the Yankees are, are surprising me. The, the the two big, beefy baseball boys, you know, Judge and Stanton, <laughs> they're, they're going ham, and it's fun. <laughs> The two big, beefy baseball boys. I love it. Alan Seppel, make sure you read his book, The Sopranos Sessions. Him and Matt Zoller's sites, literally, if you're a Sopranos fan and you haven't read it yet, shame on you because it's incredible. They literally go through every single episode, and it's so smart and so exacting. And, of course, you can read his stuff in Rolling Stone. Uh, many thanks, man. I can't wait now because, literally, we get to watch for everybody else. So now I'm curious the cacophony of noise that's about to come. We'll see. I mean, I wrote uh, an essay that my editor is sort of tearing her hair out about right now because it's almost 7,000 words. Like, just sort of, I went Soprano Session style through the movie, and it should be live on RollingStone.com at some point on Friday. Uh I hope people like it because I would like for there to be more of these things because I did really, despite some of its flaws, I did really enjoy this and I felt good to be back in this world. Yeah, amen to that. And listen, if I have to sit through all these MCU movies, then damn it, give me a Sopranos <laughs> franchise I can enjoy as well. Great stuff, Alan. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Anytime. 
All right, thanks again to Alan Steppenwall. Support his work on Rolling Stone. Now we get to the old, and I gotta tell you, sometimes, Chris, you take a flyer in a movie, you go, what the hell? The Madness of King George, 1994. Great title, by the way. When King George III goes mad, his lieutenants try to adjust the rules to run the country without his participation. It's directed by Nicholas Heitner, and it's written by Alan Bennett, based on the play, The Madness of King George III. I don't know about you and your wife, as far as similarities you may have in shows or TVs, but generally my wife laments the fact that I watch all these foreign films and these old movies because I don't care, I'm not interested in this stuff. She loves... British royalty, right? So she loves the crown, and I have no interest in the crown. I'm like, God, no more, no more of the crown. No more accents, please. Wow. And I have no interest in the crown. I'm like, God, no more, no more of the crown. No we have accents, the exact please. same dynamic in my marriage. My wife Jeez. loves the royal family, everything, right. all the shows about it, all the real life stuff about it, and I could not care less. Yes, again, Chris Cody for the win. I was like, I just, I, I just have zero attraction. To That's her, why right? when I saw you were doing this film, I was like, you know, I watched yeah. two last week. Sorry, Adnan, I'm gonna sit this one yeah. out. No, and I, I don't blame you. I, I literally took a flyer because like, you know what, 1994 is one of the greatest years ever for movies. And if you just look at the best actor nominees, Travolta for Pulp Fiction, Morgan Freeman uh, for Shawshank Redemption. Hanks wins for Forrest Gump, which is a joke. He's obviously a great actor, and it's a decent performance. The movie's awful. Wow. And, and, I mean, take the just right King, there. Sorry. Oh, yeah, the, the Lion King, amazing, 94. Uh, Quiz Show is a great film. Like, 94 is an awesome year for movies. And I'm like, I do know Nigel Hawthorne was nominated for Best Actor. Let me just check this out. And yeah. honestly, I felt like it's more like a favorite of my wife. Because she goes, why did you record this? This isn't something you'd watch. I go, no, it's not. I have no interest in this stuff. But I'll give it 10 minutes. I think you give any movie 10 minutes, and after yep. that, you can punt. And the first 10 minutes are hysterical. Nigel Hawthorne is unbelievable. I looked up some of the reviews afterwards, and th the reviews were great. They said, the only thing crazy is how the hell did Nigel Hawthorne not win Best Actor? How the hell did Tom Hanks for Forrest Gump beat him? Like, he is so good in this movie. David Stratton at the movies. Visually sumptuous, energetic, and classy. The madness of King George is British film theater at its most seductive. And the guy's a loon. Like, literally, you're like, what is going on with King George? At one point, he's getting a piggyback for a couple of guys. There's one scene, because they start to test him. So he starts peeing, which, by the way, goes back to the expression, I don't have a pot to piss in. He's literally pissing in pots, and they got to check it. And the one guy goes, oh, his pee's looking more like lemonade again. And the other guy goes, no, it still looks a little bit inky to me. And they go have to literally dunk the piss in a pond. I'm like, this is just disgusting. What is this movie about? But it's just ridiculous. It's so zany. I mean, at one point, my wife and I were howling. We rewound it and watched it five times. He's a little bit constipated. He suffers from constipation. And Helen Mirren, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, goes up to him and kind of like pats him on the stomach and kind of taps his butt and says, tight as a drum, like, mm, like my man. <laughs> and, and he says, saving your presence, I will try a fart. <laughs> That's one of the funniest lines I've ever heard. Like, the way he's, and I, again, you have to watch them. You have to picture an old British guy who was a king going, saving your presence, I will try a fart. And then you literally see him sort of squeeze. I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is not the crown. This is not the queen. This is not the Iron Lady. This is the kind of British royalty I can get behind, okay? This is just some guy who's got constipation, and he's literally losing his marbles. He's all over the place. One point he's just grabbing this woman, starts kissing her. Like, no, that's not your wife. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Ah, she's running around tearing his clothes off. I mean, just a madcap, zany movie. The Madness of King George, unlike what I was expecting. And before you think it's just some sort of stupid comedy, there's actual dramatic heft to it. Eventually, you're like, oh, he's suffering from what? Is it dementia? Ian Holm, who's a great actor, ends up, they put the king in like a straitjacket. Like, it's horrible. Think about this. This is like 1690s. They didn't care about mental illness back then. So 
it really was fascinating to think about how would people react yeah. when the guy in charge looks like he's losing his mind. And again, Rupert Graves is in the cast as well. It's really well shot. Uh, eventually, the, the true story that I looked up, because I'm like, how much of this is actually true? Did the King George go nuts? And what ended up happening afterwards? But I found that the condition that they said he was suffering from was something to do with his urine. And I'm like, wow, okay, so it actually was true to life in the fact that he had this medical condition. Modern doctors believe King George suffered from the blood disorder porphyria, which causes cramps, abdominal pain, and seizures similar to epileptic fits. George's <laughs> extremely violent attacks led to him being labeled by doctors as insane. So <laughs> this was the blood, apparently it was inherited. Insomnia, confusion, paranoia, crazy. I learned about history and I was entertained. The madness of King George. The only reason I knew King George was, went mad is because of Hamilton. Like, I know we're supposed to, like, know stuff from, like, school and stuff. Like, I, I learned that yeah. King George went mad in Hamilton. That it does, Like, I am a little intrigued by this movie. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, listen, especially now that your wife is into this stuff. Yeah. It's on HBO, which is, I know, where you watched uh, Blood and Wine. So yeah. check it out this week on, on HBO. And I'm telling you, your wife will definitely like it, and you might be surprised. If it's funny, if it's sneaky thing. funny, I do like, like, zany and funny, so. Yeah, sneaky I'll give it three and a half Maple Leafs. I thought it was very well done, and I can see why Nigel Hawthorne specifically was nominated for Best Actor. All right. As we close up shop, always gonna have a wild card. Some of the great closing lines ever. Let's in make movie the history. close of this podcast the best closing lines in movie history. Look at <laughs> exactly. us. Exactly. We'll be nominated for the best close ever of a podcast. <laughs> so there's a few in there. Obviously, Casablanca is a big one. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful mm -hmm. friendship. Humphrey Bogart says to Claude Rains, Back to the Future, which one I want, me and Chris's yep. favorite movies, where we're going, we don't need roads. Those to me are huge. Chinatown, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown, very famous one as well. But there's lots on this list. If you just start looking at the great closing lines in movies, those three come to mind, Chris. But I'm sure if you just do a quick Google search, there's a lot that come up, right? Toy Story 3. That's one. That's the. I know it's a cartoon, but when I saw oh, this I one on the list, oh my god! When Andy's driving off to college, so long, partner. I mean, it just it makes me start getting teared up just thinking about it. Oh, Dan Stanzik. It's one of his favorite movies. He gets emotional. <laughs> I, it's great. It's um, well Caddyshack. I'm, I'm trying to go for the funny ones. Hey, sure. hey, everybody! We're all gonna get laid. Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> um, yeah, those are the two that I thought of. <laughs> I, I, Usual Suspects is a great one because he was the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing really didn't exist. And he goes, and then poof, he's gone. I saw Raging Bull was on some list. I'm the boss, oh, yeah. I'm the boss. How does he yeah. say it? Yeah, he says that one a bunch. I'm a boss, I'm a boss, I'm a boss. Yeah. I'm a boss, I'm a boss, I'm a boss, I'm a boss. Is Goodfellas, <laughs> is Goodfellas, should that be on there? No. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great ending where he just he goes, I, I, I get to live my life because nobody... Uh, I live my life like a schnook. Like, it, it's yeah. okay. It's, it's more just the kind of the directing, the style of it, the shot of Joe Pesci shooting at the screen. Home Alone, Home Alone ending with uh, Buzz yelling, Kevin, what'd you do to my room? See, yeah. I'm, I'm getting so a little random. Fun. I'm getting a little random. I, I like that you're getting random, though, because compared to Goodfellas, I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook, and you go to Home Alone. How about Seven? Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. That's Morgan Freeman's voice. Okay? Yeah. King Kong. King Kong is amazing. It, it was the beauty that killed the beast. Yeah, actually a really good one. That's in the original, yep. Um, how about Iron Man? The truth is, I am Iron Man. Yeah. There, there's, there's, like, I've seen, there was a lot of those movies, like there's a Spider-Man one where at the end he's like, I'm Spider-Man. I feel like it's a little played out to like end a movie with saying the title in the movie. Like, come on. Yeah, that's a good point. I would say the Maltese Falcon, the stuff that dreams are made of, very, very good. Mm -hmm. Dark Knight, to your point, is obviously re rehashing the name of the movie. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. It's a great one. Uh, how about Fight Club? I forgot about this one. Fight Club, the last line is, you met me at a very strange time in my life. Yeah. 
Tr- training day, what a day. What a motherfucking day. <laughs> it was training day. That, that's pretty good. I forgot that was the last time. Uh, E.T., okay. Uh, Some like it hot. Nobody's perfect. That's a pretty good one. Obviously, Jack Lemmon's trying to tell him I'm a man. Shout out to Greg Cody, the Wizard of Oz, Antm. There's no place like home. I mean, that's pretty yeah. classic. I think so. I think we hit the big ones. We got Wizard of Oz. We got Caddyshack. We ran the gamut, okay? Something old, <laughs> something new, and a wild card. Look at Thank us. you so much for checking out uh, this episode of Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Check out previous guests as well. Whoever you're a fan of, please do uh, you know check out the previous guests. We have some good Ken Burns, obviously Kevin Costner, Ryan Rossillo. Next, we're going to have my buddy Will Arnett. He's great, talking Lego movie. And we'll have reviews of Impeachment, which is the new show on FX. I've seen four episodes so far. We'll talk about that. New film called Mass. And, of course, two weeks from now, we'll talk about the new James Bond film mm. shaken not stirred uh, until then I'll see you at the movies this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.